Hello, business builders. Welcome to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we interview founders of America's fastest growing companies. Our mission is to arm you with the tools and the confidence to scale your own venture. So to that end, every now and then, we gladly welcome a non-founder leader, thinker, or influencer to help you do just that. I'm Drew McClure. My co-host is Jordan Mitchell, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey guys, welcome to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, uh, where we interview the founders of America's fastest growing companies. Uh, And today you can probably already hear that this is going to be a little bit different from the normal. Obviously, I'm not Drew, and I don't have Jordan with me either. Uh, I'm Trevor Woodward. I'm here. Uh, and I'm here with Harrison Freemeyer. We both work with Drew and Jordan. Uh, and usually, we're interviewing founders of companies that have made it on the Inc. 5000 list. And what makes today different is that we like to parse out a few interview slots to interview some of our rising stars. Today, we're here with Sean Henry, uh, 23-year-old founder of Stored. Uh, he's one of the Forbes 30 under 30. He's right here in our backyard in Atlanta, and we're super pumped to have him. Sean, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's great to be here. Come on. Well, how about let's start off with this. Um, catch us up. Who are you? What is stored? Give us a little bit of background. Catch us all up to speed. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, my name is Sean Hyman, the co-founder and CEO of Stored. Stored is ultimately a digital warehousing and distribution network that helps leading brands both move their inventory across the U.S. more efficiently, whether that's to a consumer, to a retail store, however it is moving. There are companies like Advanced Auto Parts, Owens Corning, Crystal Geyser Water, some pretty large scale brands, really just helping them distribute their product more efficiently across the globe, while simultaneously using our software platform to drive more inventory visibility across their supply chain. So really giving a mix of more supply chain capability and a simultaneously better visibility across that supply chain to leading enterprises who historically face a lot of challenges when it comes to how do I get all my information, all of my data from all these disparate sources and all these manual processes that happen across a very fragmented supply chain? You've, uh, you, you've done that quite a few times, haven't you? Once or twice over the past few years. <laughs> that was seamless, man. Um, one thing I'm curious about is where did this idea start? You know, we've been interviewing a lot of founders and, and one of the biggest things that they talk about is it's it's cliche at this point, but it's like I saw a problem and I discovered a solution and I ran with it. And I'm just curious for you, was was that was that the case for you as well? And 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 where where did that kind of happen? Where did that take place? Where'd you get this understanding? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a little bit of a different perspective on 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 this and particularly because uh it ties into my age and kind of the industry we're in. And I started this business when I was 18, or I guess just about to turn 18, or just getting started. And really, at that time, most people don't have a lot of exposure to global supply chains and how enterprise brands and large scale companies move and warehouse and ship their products. And so at the time, the biggest question I was getting from everybody was mostly, what is this? What are you doing? We don't understand. And how how are you involved in this? And I think really it goes back to uh, a core value of our team at Stored and something we talk about all the time because it goes back to our earliest days is ultimately iteration. And I think that's really what brought me to Stored and where we are today because if you actually add it all up, 
I didn't have an epiphany moment when I was 18 and say, this is exactly what we need. It was both years and years and years of learnings leading up to that, that ultimately gave me insight to the problem. But simultaneously on the back end after that, years and years and years of learning still to this day, constantly learning, well, what do the customers actually really need? What are the problems in this market? And never coming with, here's my idea and here's what's going to solve everyone's problems, but ultimately bringing together just great people, great software to solve people's problems and really just listening to customers. And so if I really take it all the way back and in, in where, the, where the idea came from, I really got into the e-commerce side of entrepreneurship just extremely young um, when I was a kid because I like to joke that my, my parents didn't want to buy me a cell phone. And so ultimately, I started buying and reselling electronics parts online uh, back in 2003. I became an eBay power seller when I was literally seven, eight years old, buying and selling parts, uh, phone parts and computer parts on eBay. And it became a pretty big business for just myself. And I, I loved doing it. And it was just super fun. And then ultimately, following that thread of iteration, I started to get onto the other side. And I love my parents who joke with them about this all the time. But same thing, didn't want to buy me a car. And so I said, hey, I'm a huge car guy. I've gotten into this process of buying and reselling parts. Let me try to do the same thing in the, in the automotive space. Um, and ultimately kept growing it and growing it until it was original, until it became, I could actually go buy and import parts, resell them to local distributors and get better prices because by going to all these distributors, I end up with more volume than just one of them alone. And so by that time I was going into high school, I was building this business that was just buying and reselling automotive parts, ton of fun and I loved it to death. But ultimately uh, there's this one company I kept buying parts from, this company called Yoko Group. It's a German based automotive OEM manufacturer. And I would go to their factory in uh, Mableton, Georgia after, after school, in high school, and just go make sales orders, talk to the sales agent that I worked with, see different products there, ultimately figure out what I could sell and what I could buy and import. At one time, they were like, hey, our CEO's here from Germany. Do you want to meet him for a few minutes? And really just got the chance to meet him. I think he laughed that I was their uh, youngest and smallest customer when their biggest customers were Volkswagen and BMW and uh, these other large-scale brands. And... Uh, over the next really three, four years, just kept bugging him and bugging him and bugging him, trying to, trying to learn everything I could from him. And so what ended up happening was that I was going into college, I was going to Georgia Tech, I was going to study operations and supply chain management um, in the undergrad business school. And I just kept saying, hey, I'm obviously working with you guys, I'm buying parts from you guys, but I'd love to just work for you for free. I don't care. I just want to work from you and understand how you've built this business as the CEO and how you've scaled it up. because Ultimately, when he came in, it was one factory in Germany that the family had owned since the early 1900s, and now it was a business with 28 factories across, uh, sorry, 23 factories across 18 countries globally that was doing over a billion dollars a year in sales and just scaled phenomenally. And so just really got the chance to uh, know him and just kept bugging, hey, I'd love, love to work for you. And so ultimately put together these two experiences, the, hey, I've really gotten into the import-export process of buying and reselling and selling parts both through e-commerce channels and through importing them to the U.S. and reselling them. I'm now studying operations and supply chain management and understanding the problems and the different models that brands run for their supply chains. And then finally working at this company. And uh, my, my interesting experience was both the summer before going into Georgia Tech and then for two full semesters co-oping while I was there. I worked at this company and then also worked uh, there full time while I was in this, as a student too, just going to the office after class. I got the chance to work in 
Germany, France, Mexico, Canada, uh, Enterprise, Alabama, some pretty awesome places and some not so uh, sexy places at the same time. And so really got some interesting experience. But what I started to see was that uh, I was really focusing on two things. My position was lean management and supply chain optimization. So the lean management was internally in the buildings. How can we optimize the worker flow around the machines and ultimately cut costs and improve production, which is just a very mathematical, very consulting type uh, role. I thought it was super interesting, but where we really stumbled upon the problems that we solve today with stored is ultimately we started looking at, okay, why do we have all this inventory across the globe, especially in a B2B supply chain, a business to a business supply chain. So um, auto parts manufacturers selling to Volkswagen, for example, companies have what's called safety stock. If you have to hold 12 weeks worth of inventory on hand for me at any given time. And so we ultimately ended up holding, ended up holding hundreds of millions of dollars of inventory across dozens of different warehouses in every different country that our customers were buying from us. We just couldn't get a good handle on why we had those products in those facilities, what the SKUs were. I started reaching out to try to figure out how could we reduce our global inventory levels. And one warehouse would send back a spreadsheet. The other one would say, oh yeah, we have an online portal that sometimes some people log into. It's pretty rare. Someone just call back and say, why do you need an inventory report? I could text you some photos or just read you off a list of what you guys have here. And it's like, is this really how we're running an enterprise supply chain? The problem though, was that I ended up finding we weren't alone. I started going to anyone I could find and ultimately I think just part of my journey has just been being extremely shameless at any given point. And so one of them, the next step for me was, I just went to LinkedIn and found anyone I could in Atlanta with a supply chain in their title and just started reaching out and sending them a message. And ultimately using my youth and my uh, role as a student at that time as a way to just get a wedge in and just get vulnerable people to just answer questions and tell me about their supply chains and tell me about their problems. That's when I really just started to realize that fragmentation and a lack of visibility uh, is just really a problem across global supply chains for brands of any size, not just uh, us as a company, which ultimately is what led me to, uh, to start Story. Okay, that is wild. Um... Going back to one of the first things you said, and I have, have a, a bunch of things I want to come and touch back to, and I, I saw Harrison writing, I'm sure he does too. But one of the first things you're talking about in high school is you started selling and reselling on eBay, which we were just talking with uh, Shep Ogden and Bailey, which are the, the co-founders of uh, a, a marketing company called Scout Social. We were talking with them last week. And literally Bailey was talking about that's how he got his start. And so you know, the interesting thing with a lot of these founders is they, they have an entrepreneurial journey that precedes the, the business or the idea that really caught fire. Um, and I just think that's an interesting starting point in high school. Both of you guys toying around with eBay and finding unique ways to make money, which I think for him actually also started because his parents didn't want to buy him something or he, he, he got <laughs> really fed up with not having yeah, he got fed up with not having an allowance. But so my question tied into that is there are a lot of 18-year-olds, or I, I mean, I can even rem remember myself as an 18-year-old that was like, oh, I'd love to have more money, or I'd love to be able to afford my own car. I'd love to, to start my own business. I even had, I remember business ideas I had when I was a high schooler. But you actually acted on it, and you actually took action. So what made you different? What do you think set you apart that 
for some reason you actually acted on it, which is not something that is, is all that common. Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, I definitely have a lot to thank for my parents and just really instilling that type of, neither of them are entrepreneurs. They both worked very corporate jobs for a long time. And so it wasn't a, hey, here's what you should do is very much the opposite. But I think uh, they're just wildly supportive at any given time to let me try these different things. Because at the same time, especially in the earlier 2000s for middle school, a middle schooler and a high schooler to be on eBay and selling things on Craigslist and buying and reselling things online, parents were terrified. They thought it was the scariest thing in the world and they didn't understand what any of these platforms were. And so I think part of it is just ultimately really just embracing the difference is really what it comes down to. Because personally, I can think back and it always comes to my mind. I remember sitting at my parents' house one day during a, a summer in high school, actually, and a few of my friends had internships at small local companies, nothing fancy, just really small jobs where they were making, maybe making some money. And ultimately, it was just really tempting for me. I kept going back, kept thinking, okay, I had one connection to a bank. And I kept saying, hey, it'd be really interesting to go work at that bank and just do something in there to get part of the corporate office environment. And I just have a very explicit memory of thinking that while I was sitting at my computer, making a flyer for just a car repair business that I was trying to start at the time and seeing, hey, can I actually help people by basically connecting them with other uh, automotive repair shops that I know, and essentially kind of what we do at Stored, aggregating them, aggregating all these different repair shops, and just reselling, oh, you have an Audi, well, we can get your car repair. You have a BMW, we have the specialist to repair it. So I was trying to start this business while simultaneously having this internal conflict of, it would be really great to go also have just a job to go in the office every day, understand what happens at an office, understand a corporate environment a little bit better, have something on the resume next year while you're applying to college. And ultimately just kept wrangling back and forth with myself and just said, this really doesn't stack up to the goals that I want to achieve. That could do something and it could give me a resume boost. But at the end of the day, fighting for the business and trying to figure out how to make it work over and over and over again is going to pay more dividends in the long run, even if it's not what everyone else around you is doing. And I think you ultimately have to really just embrace that and be comfortable with the difference and really utilize it um, as a as a point of strength rather than as a point of as a point of weakness in in any way and i think actually to add on to that really quickly last thing i'd say too is i think you hit the nail right on the head with a lot of entrepreneurs who especially ones with startups especially the ones you see in inc 5000 or in forbes or in a lot of other things it's so easy to look at it and be like man it's so cool that you started a business and it took off and Trust me, I've had so many friends come to me and say, I'd love to start a startup. This looks like so much fun. If I actually tracked it back, my, uh, my entrepreneurial journey goes back 10, 15 years to the time I was just really, really young. And there's so many failures of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different business ideas that I wanted to try and wanted to get off the ground and wanted to see if there was a way to make money. But ultimately, they all just led to that compounded, very iterative effect of just building more and more and more experience really just arming you for the next time that you're trying something because it always comes down to, I remember one of the, one of the funny questions someone asked me when we signed one of our first large customers at Stored was, hey, you two are young founders. Do you even know how to invoice a massive company like that and just collect payment and follow the right processes internally with their AP and AR teams? And we're like, yeah, we'll figure it out. I'm sure we can find a way to do it. But it's just the little things like that. The how do I open an LLC? How do I start a website without having to go pay someone to do it? How do I go find my first customers for free rather than trying to run expensive ads? 
How can I just do all these scrappy little things that you have to do? You learn all those a lot along the way that ultimately just give you a toolkit when it's time to really just launch the one that maybe does end up being the company that's successful and taking off a little bit faster than the others. Well, yeah, so that was actually uh, one of my next questions for you is, do you remember what some of those like really, really early uh, experiences with entrepreneurship or even maybe some of the ideas that you had? Do you remember what some of those are? Oh, for sure. I could, I could go down a long list. Let's see. The earliest like technology company that I tried to start and that I thought would be fun was in, um, was in freshman year of high school. Uh, I ultimately ended up trying to find someone to help me build an app and uh, didn't have the money to pay them to build an app. So I was trying to do some sort of gain share model of, hey, if we get to X revenue, then ultimately you can make this much of it up to that point. Then after that, we'll split it in this way and then this way and this way. The idea at the time was essentially kind of like social messaging for sporting events. So like, hey, I'm at the time Turner Field, now SunTrust Park. I'm at Turner Field and I'm watching a Braves game and I want to be able to message with people and uh, pay to message people in other sections so I can message the fans on the other team, for example. And I'm not doing this idea justice. This was a long time ago, but ultimately that's somewhere we put, I put six months of energy or more and ultimately in time and money and, and, and everything else and nothing ever happened with it. Nothing ever came of it. And, and ultimately got a lot of learnings along the way though. But at the same time, if you kind of go back to a theme throughout a lot of my businesses, it was really trying to boil back to what can I do in a very cost-effective way? What can I buy and resell? What can I sell without owning and essentially wholesale or broker or drop ship is very much without having the resources, what can I do and what do I have in my power to start doing right now? And I think that's a hurdle I always try to uh, help talk early stage entrepreneurs through is it can be so tempting to say, I don't have the resources to do this. And in almost any business, if you either have access to a computer or have access to a phone, you can at least get started and at least start understanding the market. For Stored, for example, the first thing Jacob and I did, my co-founder and CTO, we literally locked ourselves in a room for every day a week and just forced each other to make cold calls to warehouses and call, until we called over 500 warehouses in a week and just got a ton of feedback on, yeah, I would love to do that with you guys or no, here's the problems I see and just really collected that feedback while simultaneously selling. And you don't need much money, much investment, much anything to get started in a process like that. And so what I always try to do is find the least path of resistance. And I always talk to our team internally about there's this model of, of the, the, the Nike, just do it. I always try to tell people, I don't really like the just do it as much because a lot of people try to get in way over their heads and think through, okay, to accomplish this, I'm going to have to do this mountain of things over the next few years, the next few months, the next few weeks. I really try to push people towards the just get started. Like what is the smallest thing that you could possibly do to get started in this route? It could be buy a domain. It could be call somebody. It could be send somebody an email. But I think a lot of people get just really daunted when it comes to how do I actually get started with a business when you try to think of what you need to be rather than what you try to think of what's the one action I can take today, the highest leverage one to start getting there. And it really doesn't change throughout the journey is, is another thing to point out. Even today, if I look at what we want stored to be in a year or five years or 10 years, those are really daunting things that it can become overwhelming of how can we possibly uh, bite that off and how can we possibly accomplish that? Because you ultimately always distill it back down into, okay, over the next 
30 days, 60 days, 90 days, what can we do to get there and how does it stack up to that long term? It's ultimately just helps you get started and it helps not necessarily uh, de-risk, but makes it less daunting for what you're about to do and ultimately empowers you to have smaller but more meaningful successes along the way and just really feel like you're making that progress early, really just giving you a bias towards action to just get started and get trying things. Dude, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking, man, you are in some ways like the perfect makeup of an entrepreneur. I mean, the, the grit that you've had from a young age, you're brilliant. You've had this hunger to succeed. Tell me, so really, was it your parents or are there other heroes, mentors? Who are other people that you looked up to that really helped instill some of that in you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think Ultimately, uh, I've always, I feel like at any point in my life, I've always had certain mentors and certain people I look up to. And, and it's, it, I'm one of the people, I take it very, a lot less formally than, uh, than other people. I don't try to build an ecosystem of mentors and very explicitly say, I need a coach for blank and I need a coach for blank. What I try to do is ultimately, and what I did very young was ultimately just try to find someone who has a shared goal and has accomplished it as I, ha- as I have that same goal and just try to learn from them. So my earliest days, this is just a random side story, but my best way to meet entrepreneurs as a kid, believe it or not, was ultimately literally car shows. I was a huge car guy. I wanted to go to every single car meet and talk to anybody who owned a Lamborghini, a Ferrari, a Porsche, anything, because I just knew, hey, you're probably doing something interesting in your life to be able to afford something like that. Even though it's more materialistic, that's not the point. I have a huge passion for the mechanics and the cars, but we can bond over that. And I'd love to utilize that as a point to make you a mentor and learn about what have you done in your journey and what have you done in your entrepreneurial journey? And so I just was really lucky because early on uh, as a kid, I started going to uh, the Lamborghini Atlanta probably once a week when I was anything over eight years old and just bugging the heck out of them until I made really close friends with a guy named Ed Bolian, who was the North American sales director at the time, now is an entrepreneur on his own and learned a ton from him as a kid. He helped me as I was trying to get into the different automotive businesses to connect me to people in his network, for example, where there's plenty of other examples where the way I got into buying and reselling electronics parts more than just selling things on eBay into actually exporting them was one of the customers kept buying products from me. And I ultimately just reached out to him to try to figure out why do you keep buying stuff? Most people are a one-time customer. And it turned out he owned a small string of electronics stores in uh, South America and thought it was a great way to buy products and get products from the U.S. for a better price. And so ultimately just asked him anything and everything I could about his business to understand the mechanics, understand how he got into it, how he scaled it, and how he got to where he was today. And I think really starting young is a resource that um, people tend to see as a barrier. I always try to really reframe it as a, as a positive and as a, an additive to your journey because people are so much more open and honest and willing to mentor and willing to coach when you really are that kind of raw, vulnerable, just how can I learn from you and what can I do from you, do for you? And I'll never forget, it's just the, it's the classic quote, but uh, something my mom and dad told me every day growing up was ultimately just be the best floor sweeper you can be. doesn't matter what job you're in in any sort of way possible, but absolutely give everything you can do behind that and try to be the absolute best in that role. And that's how you're going to proceed. And that's how you're going to keep pushing forward. And I think just knowing that, and I also, um, even to your, to, your, to your earlier comments that pre- uh, preceded this, I definitely don't deserve those compliments, but I appreciate it. Um, I think 
when you look at it, you just have to have almost no ego. The worst thing you can do is think you're above certain tasks. I don't care if I have to get on a cold call today and try to call a new customer. It's so easy to say, oh, come on, we have a sales team. Do I really need to do that? But at the end of the day, anything I can do that's going to add value to our team or our organization and help push us forward is in no means uh, below me. And that goes for today. That goes for as early as you were st I was starting to be an entrepreneur. And I think that goes for the entire journey at, at any given point. And I think that's what ultimately people have to remember is that there's a ton of unglamorous parts of entrepreneurship, way more unglamorous parts than there are glamorous parts. And it can be super daunting. I always tell other founder friends that being a founder and being an entrepreneur is basically like getting punched in the face every single day and just trying to figure out how many times can you take it and stand back up the next day smiling because there are highs, but there's a lot of lows and there's a lot of craziness. And you just always have to keep that longer term vision in mind and understanding of where am I trying to go and how does this help me get there? And ultimately remembering during those times when you're, whether it's staying up all night trying to finish a project or get something off or doing something extremely scrappy at the end of the day, you ultimately just have to keep the long term in mind and keep in mind that it's all just steps in the process to, to, to help you get there over time and, and not let it overwhelm you. Yeah, man, I love it. Uh, fast forward all the way to kind of today. Tell us a little bit about Stored, you know, where you guys uh, headquartered, employees, um, that kind of thing. Tell us about today. Yeah, absolutely. So we're headquartered out of Atlanta. So our office is out of the, uh, the Biltmore, which is right across the street from, from Georgia Tech. So it's been a it's been interesting to originally go from a student at Georgia Tech to now we are technically a tenant with Georgia Tech because they own the building. Um, it's, it's been interesting, but uh, we started about four years ago, just over, just over four years ago at this point, myself and my, my co-founder and CTO, uh, Jacob Boudreau. And, um, and at the time, it was just the two of us really getting started and really starting to scale up. Um, and for some context, where we are today is about uh, 85, 86 people across our entire team. Almost the entire team is based out of Atlanta, Georgia, where our headquarters is. We have engineers uh, in Uganda. We have a few salespeople in Dallas, Texas. We have a, a second office in Missouri now. We have a few more people that are becoming more and more distributed as part of the process uh, as well. Yeah, gosh. So in four years, you've grown to 86 employees. Tell me, what's that leadership journey been like for you? I mean, as, as a 23-year-old founder and now leader of, of 86 people, likely all older than you, <laughs> uh, tell, me, tell me about that journey and even just today, where you're at with that. Yeah, for sure. So I think overall, it's been, uh, it, it definitely transitions from hiring your first employee. It, it all goes back to kind of the, the iteration and just constantly learning these new things. For example, hiring our first employee was the most daunting process. We had absolutely no idea what we were supposed to do all the different compliance, all the different payroll, all the different reporting processes, absolutely no idea to, to now at this point where we can onboard people pretty seamlessly and pretty, pretty constantly and have a pretty baked hiring plan. And here's the headcounts we need over the next few months. Uh, it's, been a, it's been an interesting journey and interesting um, um, corner to round. And so I guess the context a little bit, um, where we really are, we've taken off from a team perspective really over 2019 and 2020. So we started 2019 as about 17 people in, in January of 2019 um, to that 86-ish number we are today um, in, uh, in early 2020. And so 
these last two years have particularly been the most heavy when it comes to building and scaling the team and really starting to go from, hey, I have a few people on my team to I'm really leading a team and have a larger scale team now to manage and to, to understand and to, and to lead. And so I think that process, what's been really interesting about it to me is whether you talk about the actual team and actually managing and leading a team of people or just the job as founder and CEO itself, is how different every single phase of the company is. That's always what, what strikes me is that your job is constantly evolving. I maybe do the same thing day in and day out, but almost never six months and six months later, are you doing the same thing? You're very focused on a different stage of the journey. I think at the very earliest, when you're just getting started, it's just discovery. It's ultimately, what is this market? Who are the customers? And just what do I need to know about this if I'm gonna go full force into this? you really start to shift over to really just build mode and how can I get off the ground? How can I get my first customer? What is the product that I am selling and what does it take to build that and have those capabilities and have that solution? And then you really go into kind of more of a refinement stage of, okay, maybe I've got my first customers, but how can I now start to process size some of that and really become kind of a lab where I can crank out more and more and more and more of these but then the process that we're kind of in today and over the last year and then in the next phase is really this lab to factory shift, we call it internally, where you go from, okay, how can I be this, not job shop, but this kind of early stage company that can crank out customers, can crank out capabilities to now a machine where I know if I put a penny in or a quarter in one end, I'm getting a dollar out the other end and I have the same repeatable process that I can crank 30 more times over. And so I think what's really interesting along that journey is you're just constantly focused on different things, even though the same learnings and the same trends always follow, which is really exciting because you always feel like you're, saying you're learning new things and you always feel like your job is, is very, very different. But I think if you look at it just from a people perspective, it really shifts the same way over that time as you, as you start to grow similarly. It goes from, okay, it's just myself or it's just myself and my co-founder and we're going to be together constantly, chat 24-7, call, text, ideate with each other all the time to, okay, now we have our first employee. What are, the, what are the silos of communication? Do we tell them everything or do we only tell them certain things? So then you start to get a few people and then you see, oh, what's the culture we're building? What, what do these people talk about when we're not in the room and they're by themselves? And there's some pretty cool memories and moments that I think a lot of other founders share of like, the first time, for example, you walked into your office and there's a meeting happening that you don't even know about. It's, it's an interesting experience. Um, when you start to get other people building what you're trying to build with you and for you and doing it autonomously and understanding what they're, they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to contribute. And I think as you start to develop that culture and really just go into the, the later and later and later phases, it just keeps getting a little bit more complex. So Last year, for example, was things like, how can we implement OKRs, so objectives and key results, so we have our company-wide objectives, and then every team and every employee has their results that they're trying to drive on a monthly and quarterly basis, so that we can be all aligned towards the same goals and towards the same vision. Right now, it's a lot of, okay, when you're a small team, it's very easy to communicate the same vision, the same things to everybody. It's everyone's in the same room. We had a one small WeWork office, and it's basically a big glass bowl, and so if anyone says anything, anybody else can hear it. There's not really many secrets. And then at the same time, when you start to grow and there's people in different offices, there's people in, in different states and different uh, uh, countries at this point, 
it really starts to come down to communication. And we just really, really focus on over communication and how can we default to just more and more and more information for our team at any single point. And then all the way to kind of where we are today with that type of communication is, okay, now that we have so many people, how can we communicate out more broadly these goals, these missions, and particularly the long-term so that everyone knows how what they're doing today adds up to the value that we're trying to build not only tomorrow, but over the next few years at, at the same time. And then the, the last thing I'd maybe put as part of that is I don't have the, the full experience of going from 85 plus to hundreds plus or thousands plus. We'll, we'll, we'll get there in due time, but I think at the end of the day, um, I heard a great quote from someone recently who was a founder of a company that scaled to thousands and thousands and thousands of employees. And um, his point was ultimately, once you pass kind of the 50, 70 employee mark, it doesn't feel that different in a lot of ways. Because at the same time, you as the founder and CEO, you have your 10, 15 direct reports, the people you spend the most time with. They maybe each have one to two key people on their teams that you engage with fairly frequently. And then after that, you start building out an organization and you have to communicate with everyone. You have to be in front of everyone constantly. But at the same time, your, your day-to-day is really still with those same 15 times one to two people. So max 30 people at any given time that you're really spending your, your time and your energy with. And so at the end of the day, once you get to a certain point, uh, I think, I can't validate this just yet, I think what starts to happen is it really starts to scale and your, your day-to-day becomes less different than it did every time you added just one new person or one new team when you were that much smaller. And so it's definitely been a really interesting journey, not only to learn about uh, anything from uh, organizational theory to managing and leading people to, at the end of the day, we have people who are over two times my age and are, are some of our best employees and best contributors, but just having to have extreme humility and empathy to say, hey, you've been doing this for 30 plus years and you know this industry inside and out. I'm not here to tell you how to do it better. I'm here to empower you and align you. I want to empower you with the resources to basically say you're the best at your job. Let me get out of the way, but simultaneously align you to what we're trying to build and what I'm having everybody else trying to build alongside of you. And so I think at the end of the day, you really just have to approach managing people and leading people with as little ego as you can possibly uh, pull together and uh, really just say, hey, I'm here to serve you uh, at, at the end of the day. Dude, you, uh, you have lived 10 lives, led, led 10 companies, and learned more than most people uh, in their journey. So love the humility. Um, love just hearing that, that through each kind of chapter of Stored to this point, you've pushed through those glass ceilings. You've learned new techniques, and uh, you've taken those challenges head on. That's, it's amazing. I'm like, I want to get into each one of those and, and what was the key learning that, that shifted and grew the company and all that. But uh, for the sake of time, I want to do this. I want to um, come to today, right now, and you're a really humble leader, so this might be difficult for you, but what are you best at? Like, yes, you're young and you're leading this company of a ton of people, but there's something that is your unique ability. What's your superpower? What's the thing that you are best at? I even just think of the, the floor sweeper, you know, what is the, the floor that you've learned to sweep, you know, the best. You are correct. This is my, uh, this is my absolute worst question. And I, I hate this. Um, 
I think, I think at the end of the day, if I had to identify one thing, I think that I've particularly gotten, uh, gotten good at over time is, is ultimately distilling down uh, a lot of information, and especially, especially from a lot of different people and trying to help people come to understanding and resolve. And so that's not just conflict management is what I mean, but it can be anything from helping team members who you walk into a meeting and there's three different team members, each of which you have four people that work for them and they all have developed their own opinions about a perspective. It's really helping that type of group level set and understand each other's opinions and understand each other's uh, viewpoints on the same situation to try to come to a resolve. So I think part of it is ultimately kind of helping others level set with each other and get on the same page. Part of it is also utilizing that as a kick point to do what I think I am, uh, if I just had to say personally, uh, uh, okay at is the how do I get something to action? How do I get something unstuck and in, in, in moving? Because I think what really just motivates me and on the flip side, what really motivates me, what motivates me since I was really young, I always boil it down to one word is progress. What I've always hated and I've used the same word since I was in high school, I remember it, it's just stagnation. I just really don't like just things sitting still and being stuck. And so ultimately trying to just bring people together, trying to level set and trying to figure out how can we push forward together? Because what I always try to remind in that is, we all have the same goal. We're all proceeding, entering this with different opinions of the what, the why, and the how. But we have to remember at the end of the day, the only reason we're all coming with those opinions is because we all agree on the what we're trying to accomplish. So we have a shared goal. Now, how can we use each other the best to actually get there and get unstuck and get to action a little bit, a little bit faster? Yeah. So let's, let's flip it. Let's reverse it. And don't give me a, you know, a strength that, you know, you're, you're weak at, but when you look in the mirror and, you know, you see yourself as a 23 year old co-founder of this company, what do you see? Like, what's the number one thing where you're saying, man, I really want to develop in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think one of the things that's constantly on my mind from those, just like, where could I improve and how could I develop perspective? Part of it is patience. Um, I think at the end of the day, if I look at our market and what we want to do, we are in a, we're in a bad market for somebody like myself who wants to do everything and, and, and has a lot of ambitions because supply chain's massive is all I mean by a bad market. It's a $220 billion market just in warehousing, $1.2 trillion market in the freight space. It is, it is a massive place because over $11 trillion of goods in the U.S. goes through warehouses uh, alone every single year. And so if you look at it, part of the problem with the industry we're in is just how big and expansive it is and how much you can do. And so what they tell you as an early stage startup and a lot of advice you get from people is ultimately do one thing really well. And so when you're in a really big and really daunting space, it can be really hard to do that. So I think when I look at how can I improve and, and how could I uh, better serve our team, our company, and what do I constantly strive for is... I'm very much the uh, constant iteration. How can we do more? How can we do more? And how can we do more? But sometimes I have to have that patient side of at the same time, how do I just manage an organization? And if I want to do that, set that out to Q2 2021 instead of wake up tomorrow. Oh, how can we frantically do this and start driving action in this, in this way? So it's really going from an entrepreneur where you're constantly, that's a great opportunity. How can I do that right now to really an operator and helping scale a business and helping manage and lead a team over, over a long term is what I invest 
a lot of time and energy behind when I'm thinking about how could, how could I improve and then how could I be better in this regard? Yeah, man. I mean, that's, that's something even we face internally with our own company. Uh, I'm thinking of one thing that Jordan, one of our co-founders talks about a lot is the difference between a laser beam and the sun is just a matter of focus. Like the sun actually has tons more energy than the laser, but it's all spread out and across a massive distance. And so at worst, you just get a burn. But a laser beam, you only need a little bit of energy, just extremely focused, highly localized on one thing. It can actually be really, really potent. So, man, that's something that just us, um, I hear what you're saying. Like we're constantly having to, to focus and focus and focus and not stay in that entrepreneurial stage of taking 20 different steps in 20 different directions and saying, all right, what is the one, maybe two directions that we're going to pick? Um, thanks for that vulter, uh, vulnerability. Vulnerability. Miss Sam, my words here, Sean. Um, dude, one thing I'm curious about, what's the, the most consistent present problem that you face today? Ooh, this could be for you personally. This could be one for stored. Uh, or you can answer both. Yeah, I'm, I'm really following your lead here. Most consistent problem. Good question. I think, um, I think when I think about it personally, uh, my personal one, I would say is, is just, uh, this is a cop-out answer, but I'll explain it a little bit further, is, is time. I think at the end of the day, it's really just how can I allocate my time the most effectively? Because you do constantly have to be asking yourself the question, is this the highest leverage task I can do? Is this the best thing that I can be focusing my time on? Or is there somebody else that can really do this not only better, but do it more of it because they have more time to dedicate here. So both time in the day, but less time in the day, because when people say I'm just so busy at the end of the day, everybody's busy. Everybody's busy in their own regards and everybody has the same 24 hours in a day. But some people do a lot more than some people do a lot less. And so at the end of the day, the personal, and I think it goes to company as well, challenge and constant problem the constant thing i'm trying to figure out how to solve is how can we do more with the same resource of time at the end of the day time is always going to be the same so how can i either let go of things or empower somebody else to do them instead or refocus my energy so that i'm doing the most high leverage tasks for myself at any given time but i think as we've grown it's also become doing doing that for our other team members something i think uh, if I had to answer what my ideal superpower would be, I think it would be really helping unlock that in other team members, helping them understand how do you be the laser beam instead of the sun? How do you focus so specifically to really hit your goals? And how do you identify what you're really good at and empower your team members to do the things you're not? Really driving that same just thought process and, and uh, management style and ownership process of, of how they work to other people is something that I really want to, uh, to, in, to improve and constantly get better at. Kind of in line with that on the whole time management piece, how do you go about solving that? Yeah, that's a good question. I've heard, uh, I've heard a lot of different things and I had, uh, I had uh, one uh, kind of early mentor advisor guy I really look up to who uh, he and his wife, for example, still to this day, every year they'll go back through their calendars and just highlight things that either brought them joy or didn't. And they say, you know what, we need to stop doing these things. This is more on the personal level. Uh, we either need to stop doing these things or we need to find someone else who can do these things for us. Now for a company that can be a different question of, was I the most effective? 
at doing this? Did I have the time and energy to dedicate towards this? Is there somebody else who could do this instead of me? And I think ultimately really just kind of doing a personal audit, but also just you have to layer it into your, to your day to day and to your conversations. This is a really small one, but I was finding, for example, if I ask people at the end of an interview, do you have any questions for me? It's very common that somebody just thinks they should ask as many questions as they possibly can. But tailoring that to something like, do you have any questions that I'm uniquely positioned to answer that you haven't been able to get answered yet? Really just trying to constantly, that's just a micro, micro example. But I think trying to constantly layer things in like that and get other people to help understand drives the same behavior to them when it comes to time management, auditing their time and really focusing on being the most effective that you, you can be in the, in the time you have. That's great. Uh, I want you to visualize two different things for me. And the first one would be uh, where would you be or where would stored be or both? Again, you, you can think about it both ways, but where would you be uh, if you got it right a hundred percent of the time? let's say 80% of the time, right? Like the overwhelming majority of the time you got this right. Also, so kind of give me like a best case scenario, dream world, where would you be? Additionally, I want you to give me an idea of, of what would it look like if you got it right less than 20% of the time. So kind of a best case scenario and worst case scenario. Best case scenario, if we got it right 80% of the time, and we really built what we want to build. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm, uh, I kind of tie myself to stored because at the end of the day, the, uh, not your question, but uh, I think for founders that the idea of the work-life balance is very much the, uh, the kind of one life um, thing that a lot of people are pushing out now that ultimately all blends together at the end of the day. And if you're not enjoying it just as much as you're enjoying your, your personal life and you're not one authentic and, and true self throughout the whole thing, you're going to have that internal battle and you're going to get burned out. And so if I had to think about just me and stored and kind of where we'd be in, in a few years and kind of ideal scenario, if we got it all right versus if we uh, got most of it wrong and, and didn't get it all right. I think for us, um, we focus on three things from a success perspective. We want to be uh, one, the leading distribution network globally by volume. And uh, that would mean uh, anything in the, I would call it, there's a lot of companies in our space that we track that are anywhere from five to 15 billion in, in revenue from a size perspective that we think we can upend in a lot of ways and really compete with over time. The second one is we want to displace legacy software systems. And so as we build out our network and as customers use our platform, we wanna pull them out of things like their ERP system and the SAP and the Oracle and the other platforms they use for supply chain data today into our system to be more real-time and active and give them more real-time um, data about what's happening in their supply chain networks. And so, so far, it's really, we want to be the leading distribution network globally by volume. We want to uh, take people out of legacy systems and, and entrench on legacy software systems and supply chain. And third is we want to be a customer obsessed global company. I, I really believe in the kind of um, uh, globalization of, of, of especially things in supply chain. And we're just really excited about the future for, okay, we're North American right now. How can we help companies across the globe in the future who are already our customers for shipping to the U.S., but ultimately help them in, in, in other markets? And the piece in there that I don't want to go unmentioned is ultimately the customer obsession part. That's the one of the cultural pieces we default to so often for just how we think about people uh, from recruiting, from a partners, from anyone who either comes on board or works with us at Stored is ultimately defaulting to, 
does this add value to, to our customer? And is this making the best decision for our customer? And so ultimately, I think if we do all three of those things, we'll all be, uh, we'll all be very happy and we'll have to do uh, uh, 80% of things correctly to, to get there over time. Now, if we don't, I think at the end of the day, the, the risk for us is we know what has to be built. Uh, we have the customers who are uh, pushing with us, who are paying us and who are growing with us. We have companies coming to us, leading Fortune 500 companies who are trying to figure out their next steps in their supply chain and how do they make it more digital and how do they get better visibility across it. It's really an execution question to me, less than it is a model question. And so that's where I think I'm not worried about are we going to fail? Because I think at the end of the day, we already see that this market and these customers are out there. But I think if you don't do it correctly, you risk just getting stuck as a, uh, a boutique mid-sized company, whether you're still, you could still grow to be a moderate 20, 30, 40 million uh, revenue business. But at the end of the day, if you're really trying to be a, a, a global business and, and a massive business and take over a market, you have to do a lot of things right, but a lot of things consistently over, over a long period of time. And that's where ultimately that, that patience really just uh, comes back into it. And if you kind of look at those two scenarios of like either taking over the market or ultimately uh, being a mid-sized company and just uh, doing well, but um, not hitting that, hey, we want to reinvent this market perspective. My co-founder and CTO and I had a, a lot of conversations early on on just what do we want to be? And what do we want to build? And especially when it came to taking our first venture check at this point, we've raised over $15 million from different investors, but taking that first check, we had to ask ourselves, are we just trying to build a small business that we own and we operate 100% ourselves and every decision is ours. And we know what that means. That means it's going to be a lot longer of a journey. It's going to be slower growth and it's going to be hard to impact the market the way we want. But if the final answer is this is how we want to impact the market, then we do need to take that capital to hit those goals and be able to completely not only rebuild that system and that distribution system, but also the, the software and the sales and the support that goes behind really capturing that market. So I think at the end of the day, um, um, you have to just be very self-aware early on of what are you trying to build and, and where do you want to go? Because venture capital, I know this wasn't your question, but venture capital is, is not for everyone and it's not for every business and it, it really shouldn't be. It's not a, it's not a take, raising money is not a success metric. Uh, and ultimately it does, it's, it's more of a liability than anything else. And so you have to ultimately try to figure out what am I trying to build and what is success going to be for me and work backwards from that to understand what you need to do and, and what your goals need to be along the way. So good, man. Let's do this. As we come to a close, we always ask uh, our kind of our rapid five questions um, right here at the end. So just quick kind of bullet point answers, uh, and then we'll close this thing out. So uh, if you could ingrain one message into your organization, what would it be? If every person in your team could just trust and know one message, what would it be? I'd say don't default to, I don't want to fail default to I want to succeed. I think a lot of people make decisions around is this going to make me look bad versus what's the upside here and what could I succeed here with if this goes uh, correctly. Yeah, it's great. What's the single best advice you've been given that you can think of right now uh, on growing and scaling a business? Uh, this one's pretty easy. It's uh, one, of my, one of my early mentors and an, an investor in stores just higher tens. 
hire people who are 10 out of 10 and people who are way better and way smarter than you. And don't be fearful of people who are that same thing, way better and way smarter than you. They're only going to push you forward faster. It's brilliant. What's the advice that you hear that's just not true? <laughs> um, that's an interesting one. I think at the end of the day, the, the advice that I hear that's not true is, um, is mostly related to, yeah, I think the one thing that I tend to hear that I disagree with when it comes to advice, particularly to early stage companies, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, is ultimately the do only one thing and have a very specific product that you sell for a very explicit price. I think a lot of companies get bogged down in how can I do exactly this for exactly this user before they even get those first few users. And my thought is always find the person who's willing to take the chance on you and is willing to buy from you and invest in your product and utilize that to really start to grow and find your first few champions rather than, Hey, how can I make this that, that factory from, from day one? Yep. That's the entrepreneur's biggest problem. It's coming up with an idea and a mechanism and then trying to sell it versus listening first. What does the customer need? And then building a mechanism uh, that solves that problem. You know, agree more. Don't, don't try to sell without listening. Love that. All right. So let's get a little, a little bit vulnerable again. Uh, what's the secret fear that keeps you up at night? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the secret fear that keeps me up at night is, are we doing this right? Because there's no answer is the kind of inherent problem. And I think at the end of the day, it's so hard when every single decision you make day to day is a different decision tree. And there's no answer if it's right or wrong and you don't find out for years and years to come. And so I think as a first time founder, whether that's questions about business model strategy decisions we're making day to day, or even things about, am I managing this team member right? Am I setting up these processes correctly? There's just so many unknowns that the same way there's decision fatigue for founders in a lot of ways, it ultimately causes people to question and, and me personally too, am I doing this right? And, and are we making the right choices? And am I the right person to make these choices? Yeah. So what's the, what's the dream result on the flip side of that? What's the dream result that you're driving towards every day? I know you gave us a, the stored uh, kind of big three that you're leading towards, but you personally, what's your dream result? Yeah, absolutely. My dream result at the end of the day is just pro continued progress. Uh, I, 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 that's really all I care about is ultimately feeling like we're pushing forward both personally and as a company every single day to be better than we were the day before. And I know that's common advice and that's a, that's a, a overused statement in a lot of ways, but I think you can constantly default to that as your North star of, am I pushing forward to be better than I was before? And am I making progress? Then you'll always be ultimately satisfied in the journey, not just with the result itself. Yeah, that's good. Dude, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been great. Uh, you're really inspiring. I mean, as a 23 year old, uh, working at the, you know, right across the street from the place you graduated from, what, two years ago? <laughs> and just common, common misconception. No, I, I ended up, I ended up dropping out after we started storage. That's the, uh, that's the secret, uh, ingredient to an entre successful entrepreneur is you got to drop out. One of the variables. <laughs> yes. I love it. But we graduated, so we're screwed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, you're uh, you're impressive man you're brilliant i love your grit and your resolve um 
sounds like you're leading a great company and uh, we're excited to see where Stored goes. And so, man, we're, we're cheering you on and uh, hopefully we'll have you back as an Inc. 5000 guest uh, in the near future. So Yeah, I would love to. Friend. I would love to. Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been super, super fun to be a part of. And I think you guys are taking an awesome approach to really just understanding founders and the stories and the people, because that's for me, ultimately what, what I would have wanted early on and what I constantly strive for rather than just understanding the, the businesses themselves. So absolutely love what you guys are doing and thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thank you. Okay, friends. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Head to 0to5000.com for exclusive tools to grow your business. That's Z-E-R-O-T-O 5000.com.